Listeners, before we get to the show, you may have noticed a recent issue with this podcast feed. You may have lost a bunch of episodes of this show. You may have gotten a lot of podcast episodes of shows you did not want. It was crazy. Uh, Podageddon, Podpocalypse, Podnado, Podblivion, call it whatever you want. I'm sorry about it. I cannot explain how it happened. Something, something, HTML code. I don't know. But it is fixed now. That said, if you're still having issues with podcast apps and such, go to npr.org slash help and do us a solid. Double check to make sure that you're still subscribed to all of your favorite NPR shows like this one. All right. Again, my apologies. Here's the show. Aunt Betty, take us away. Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, Los Angeles Times national correspondent Matt Pierce and KPCC healthcare reporter Michelle Faust-Ragavon. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Happy weekend to my listeners and my guest, Matt Pierce, reporter for the L.A. Times, covering 2020, and Michelle Faust-Ragavon, healthcare policy reporter at KPCC. Uh, this is your first time on. Matt, you're a veteran. Give her some tips. Hey, um, don't just start shouting swear words into the microphone. <laughs> I do know how radio tip works. One. I do yeah. know how radio works. That's a good tip. So we're joined in studio this week by The Killers and one of my favorite songs, Mr. Brightside. Uh, the Killers are in the news this week for kind of a bad reason or a sad reason for me. The... Well, first, let's just post this wonderful song. But I'm going to take you back to college. It just, it takes you there. Oh, my God. So, anyway, the killers were in the news because they are one of the acts that was set to headline Woodstock 50, which was supposed to happen this August. And the organizers said this week it might not happen. Nope. Did we need to do Woodstock yeah. again? Yeah. Can you imagine being able to tell your grandkids, Generation AA, about that time <laughs> you saw the killers at Woodstock? <laughs> Wouldn't that have been so fun? I mean, I guess if they had done it when I was 16 in high school and was like really into that song, but now it's kind of like a it's like a rebrand thing almost where, you know, I am 33 years old now. Uh, and so the act of seeing the killers ideally for me probably involves seats. Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Would you go to Woodstock? Well, I remember Woodstock 94, and they were trying to oh. bring it back. And I begged my uncle to buy me tickets. I begged my parents. They were like, what are you saying? You're not going to that. But my uncle did buy the pay-per-view and tape it on VHS and Aww. send it to me from New York. So this Woodstock thing that was supposed to happen this year, it was going to happen about 150 miles away from the original location. Uh, but the whole lineup was massive. Santana, David Crosby, John Fogarty, Jay-Z, Chance the Rapper, Miley Cyrus... But this week, a key investor pulled out, uh, and the statement from Woodstock 50 organizers said, Despite our tremendous investment of time, effort, and commitment, we don't believe the production of the festival can be executed as an event worthy of the Woodstock brand name. Someone finally saw one of the Fire Festival documentaries. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not do this. <laughs> All right, we're going to start the show as we always do, asking each of my guests to describe their week of news in only three words. 
Michelle, your words could just be measles, measles, measles. I mean, I thought about that. <laughs> Exclamation point after each yeah, one. Yeah. Uh, You're covering this right now. Yeah. Okay. Worst in decades. This measles outbreak. Yeah. And it really is, huh? It is. I mean, we eradicated measles, which means like it was down to near zero, very small numbers. For a while. For a while. We're talking 2000 when it was eradicated. And now we have the worst in more than 20 years, like about 24 years. Give me some numbers to show the scale of this outbreak. I mean... In the grand scheme of things, about 91% of Americans are vaccinated against measles. So in the United States, we're talking more than 700 people who have gotten measles this year. That's crazy. Right. Okay. I see the headlines about measles. I see the stories about measles. Tell me exactly again what the symptoms are and like what it does to you. A rash and fever, but okay. it's it's really, it's the complications that you get from measles. You might just be sick for a week mm-hmm. and, you know, stay in bed, but, or a little more than a week, but some people do get that swelling on the of the brain, which is really the concern is yeah. uh, permanent brain damage. Uh, people in the past used to go deaf from measles wow. regularly and, you know, people dying. It, it happened quite regularly when measles was something to expect, wow. but You don't have to get measles if you get the vaccine and you got to have those two shots. Exactly. I wrote about um, the history of measles a couple of years ago when there was a a smaller outbreak. And what I learned about measles is that it was one of the diseases that, um, you know, when the uh, colonists came to the New World, um, was responsible for wiping out a lot of indigenous populations in the U.S. and in the Pacific. This is Christopher Columbus's fault. Yeah, I mean, you know, you talk about, I mean, these were the days before modern medicine. Um, And so over time, even before the vaccine was prevalent, um, you know, it was killing fewer and fewer people. But um, it's really worrisome. And I think the thing that really worries me about it is that, you know, it's one of these problems that we we have the technology to solve. This is not something where, you know, we need to invent something to stop the the meteor. Yeah, the invention's there. You know, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, we'll find a way to get past this current outbreak. But that doesn't bode well for the other really big problems that we're trying to solve. Right. Is California like ground zero for U.S. measles? Where is it? No, it's really the bigger issue is out east you really? know, in New York, also in the Northwest, um, places where I went to high school. Okay. You know, there's there's some issues there. But um, really here in L.A., the bigger issue is that there was this huge quarantine at UCLA and Cal State L.A. Yeah. And that means that like more than a thousand people were exposed. Measles is extremely contagious. Yeah. So what that means is like you sneeze with measles and it stays in the air for two hours. Wait, what? Yeah. What do we know about the people who aren't vaccinating? Well, these days in California, especially, Uh um, if you want to go to public school, you've got to vaccinate because they kind of put the hammer down (laughs) in 2015 when all the people got measles at Disneyland. But um, there are pockets. God, that sounds like a nightmare. (laughs) Right? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, not not a good memory. But yeah. they they put the hammer down um, to go to public school in California. You have got to have a medical exemption, mm-hmm. no non medical exemptions, or you have to show that you've got your yeah. vaccines. And there's a new bill being pushed in California that would make those rules even tighter. You've been following that. Yeah, okay. exactly. So um, there is a bill. If it passes, California would be the second. This is following a West Virginia law. Mm-hmm. California Department of Public Health would oversee all of the exemptions. Yeah. So you, really what they're saying is that exemptions should happen only for people who've got cancer, uh, transplants. I mean, we're talking little kids who are really, really sick. Yeah. Um, but the doctors can give the um, 
exemptions for anyone they think is necessary, but it will be overseen and they will have to defend it to Department of Public Health. And this might happen in other states. Mm -hmm. Um, California is one of three states that require medical exemptions, no non-medical exemptions. But, you know, things might change considering this outbreak. Yeah. You've been talking to folks as you cover this story. What are people on the ground being affected by this saying to you? What stood out to you? I mean, really, (laughs) when you look at what was going on, like at UCLA, um, people were scared. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, those quarantines officially this week, they ended. Okay. okay. Best thing that happened to them all week, right? (laughs) (laughs) But you're talking about them, you know, they're in these plush rooms with uh, flat screen TVs, pizza, catered meals. Wait, that's the quarantine room? Right. So not too bad. But it's scary, right? Because they said that even though it felt like summer camp, um, people were acting like they were in the morgue. That's from the Daily Bruin. Wow. So the the students who were quarantined were like, it's nice accoutrements, but I'm on sick watch. Right. And you're calling mom or whomever. And you can't leave the room. And you can't leave the room and you're trying to get your records. You know, public health here in L.A. did a lot of work Mm -hmm. trying to make sure that they people got cleared quickly. And they really did. They were able to get hundreds of people. So the folks that didn't have the records up to date, they had to go into quarantine until they could prove that the records were up to date. Or they did a blood test. So if you're not sure, I'm actually going to go get my blood test because. What, you're not sure? I I am vaccinated. (laughs) I am vaccinated, but I was vaccinated before. 489, so I'm going to have my, my blood test. We're going to have to have you record from the other studio, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> need to quarantine this taping. Uh, I have three words for y'all. They are nowhere to go. And I'm talking about uh, the homeless problem that is a big deal across the country, but has hit like a head in San Francisco recently. Have you guys followed this crazy saga of dueling GoFundMe campaigns in San Francisco over a possible homeless shelter? No. So uh, the new San Francisco mayor, London Breed, wants to build a new homeless shelter that would have over 200 beds, but she wants to put it near the waterfront in San Francisco, near the Embarcadero. A lot of homeowners near the Embarcadero, this pretty touristy site, they're like, don't put it over here. We're going to fight you. You can't do this. Uh, so the homeowners started their own GoFundMe page called Safe Embarcadero, and they wanted to raise $100,000 to pay for lawyers to challenge this shelter. Uh, after they did that, there was a competing GoFundMe effort called Safer Embarcadero for All, and they raised a bunch of money to fight the homeowners' legal challenge. And that GoFundMe was even supported by Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, and GoFundMe itself gave $5,000 to this campaign. Wow. So you had the situation where San Franciscans are raising hundreds of thousands of dollars to fight over a homeless shelter in San Francisco. And I say to myself, couldn't you just spend that money to, like, house folks? Anyways, it gets crazier um, because this billionaire founder of Salesforce, Mark Benioff, he recently said, I'm going to give $30 million to fight this too, but it's $30 million to research the root cause of homelessness and find ways to end it. Oh, man. You know, this is like that episode in The Wire where they go to Stringer Bell's apartment, right? And it's the big <laughs> drug lord apartment. And the detectives are looking around and it's like super nice. Yeah. And um, one of them picks like a copy of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations off the wall. And I was like, who was I chasing here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. These yeah. are problems that run deep. Yeah. You know, um, uh, LA Times, we just did a story yesterday about um, employer-provided health insurance. So, mm-hmm. um 
one of the big findings of that story is that one out of five Americans who have health insurance through their employer mm-hmm. um, actually cannot afford to save money. And so you think wow. about, you know, just sort of like basic economics of like what it's like to live in the United States. You need to pay for, you know, housing, food, uh, health insurance. Yeah. And, you know, when you have a job, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, exactly. people have in our economy now. It's like yeah. employment's really low. Even when you have a job and even when you have this really desirable thing, you still can't really afford to live or uh, afford to use it. And, you know, I think this is one of those things where cities on the West Coast, like LA, like San Francisco, like Seattle, uh, like Portland, um, I think it's a preview of what a lot of other cities across the U.S. are going to be experiencing soon, which is, um, you know, you have this big migration of professionals to the cities and, you know, housing prices are going through the roof. Not enough is being built to house all the people who are there and the people at the bottom just fall out and yeah. they don't have any place to go. Yeah. I mean, part of the issue is you've got people who are not necessarily growing in their income, people older. I mean, my parents yeah. moved out to the desert because they couldn't afford Ford LA County. Wow. Anymore. Now, there are other people that they don't necessarily have that option, or by the time things sneak up on them, the cost of their medicine, as you were talking about, yeah. you know, it goes up too high. And people, where do they go? They go back and live with family. Mm-hmm. They move out of LA County. Or they live in their cars. A lot or of they times live too. in their cars, or they end up on the street. So, so things are happening with a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Well, and like, I wonder as well, you know, we're entering 2020. Um, I could see Republicans and Democrats making homelessness and housing affordability a big issue from now until November of next year, but I don't see folks really talking about it nationally yet, which is, I don't know, this is a thing that's really kind of affecting the entire country. So a colleague of mine, Matt Tinoco, is doing a lot of work on homelessness. Housing reporter only covers homelessness pretty much at this point. And I was sitting next to him and he was reading documents from the 70s, trying to look at how to make more low-income housing. And some of the same arguments that you hear now. And and just we're not progressing as much as we need to, considering the explosion of the number of people living on the streets in L.A. and across the country. Across the country. Man. All right. We're going to take a quick break, but then we'll be back with Matt's three words. They're about some things he's learned about Democratic voters. All right. BRB. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services. With a franchised network of highly trained agents and advanced marketing tools, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services network members aim to provide something more than just real estate. They think beyond the next transaction and build relationships based on your long-term goals to ensure you'll get all the value that home brings year after year, home after home. All that more they do, that's home services. Start your home search at BerkshireHathawayHS.com. Support also comes from RCA Records, presenting Pink's new album, Hurts to Be Human, featuring the hit songs Walk Me Home, Hurts to Be Human featuring Khalid, Hustle, Can We Pretend featuring Cash Cash, and more. Pink's new album, Hurts to Be Human, available everywhere now. If you love this show, then check out Life Kit, tools to help you get it together. Think of it as that friend who always has great advice on everything from how to invest to how to get a great workout. Subscribe to Life Kit All Guides to get episodes on every topic all in one place. Find it in Apple Podcasts or at npr.org slash lifekit. 
Hey, listeners, Sam here. I want to plug next Tuesday's episode. It is a, a little meta all about how Instagram is totally upending and changing the world of art. Got the idea for this episode because I spent some time in museums over the last few months. And it seems as if everywhere you go in all these museums, it's all about getting the right photo and selfie for your Insta feed. But here's the thing. Uh, Instagram isn't just changing museums. It's changing all of art and how people make it and how they share it and what it means. So next week on Tuesday, our episode will include voices of Instagram poets and visual artists telling me how Insta is changing their lives and their work. It will be fun. Check it out next Tuesday on It's Been a Minute. All right, back to the show. We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, Matt Pierce, reporter for the L.A. Times, covering 2020, even in 2019. And Michelle <laughs> faust Ragama. It's true. It's I know, already happening. I know it's true. It's okay. <laughs> And Michelle Faust-Ragavan, healthcare policy reporter at KPCC. So every week on the show, we describe our week of news in only three words. Matt, you're up. Everybody's a pundit. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Explain, sir. Uh, So... I just started on the 2020 beat for the LA Times. Uh, Kudos. Thank you. Thank you. As someone who covered 2016, I will say it's going to be the best of times and the worst of times. I am looking forward to downloading your brain on that because uh-huh. um, I have never covered a presidential campaign before. I had been a national correspondent for the LA Times for about six years. And mm-hmm. so this is my this is my first bite at the apple of okay. a presidential campaign. It's going to be a bitter apple. It is going to <laughs> be a really bitter apple. Um, and so... You know, it's it's crazy. It's 2019. We've got 22 Democrats in the field right now. And I was trying to think about ways that I could maybe do my coverage a little bit differently because every other reporter on the planet's going to be covering this election mm-hmm. pretty much. So I decided to do a survey um, yes. of my readers to ask them, you know, how do you think I should do my job? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you I'm, ask them like what kind of stuff you, they want you to cover in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to know if you were the editor of the LA Times, what would you tell your reporters to do? And overwhelmingly, like two thirds of them told me, we want you to do stories about policy. Policy is the thing that's really important, the candidates' positions, which, you know, I think in this enlightened sense, we're all sitting around here. It's like, yes, policy stories, you know, and I'm like, I dig that. But actually, so the next question was, now be honest, as a reader, which type of story are you most likely to read? Interest in policy stories plummeted. Really? They were more interested in accountability stories about, mm. you know, who's trying to influence the election, either through campaign donations or, you know, Russia. Yeah. And so this is something that um, my colleagues have already seen in Iowa when they're talking to voters, when they're talking about Joe Biden, who is currently the front runner. The front runner. He's pulling by the best several one. points. Several, several points. Yeah. Um, but um, talking to a lot of those voters, they say, yeah, I think, you know, Biden's the best guy to beat Trump because that's a really important issue. And that's not a policy thing. That's, that's not a policy thing. That's just quote, likability thing, which is a toxic word to use right now. But yeah. like, it seems as if it's a personality popularity contest more than it is an issues race. It's like voters have become themselves sort of talking heads on cable TV where they're analyzing the election. They've become pundits. Hence your They've three become words. pundits. Yeah. Everybody's, Everybody's a, a pundit. pundit. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> you know, and that's really interesting because a lot of them say that their heart lies with another candidate. And, you know, you look at a field this size in the Democratic primary, and there are a lot of ideas being batted around. Um, Jay Inslee, who is one of the, who you know, horde. Um, who is that? Uh, he's the governor of Washington. He's actually one of the most experienced candidates in the race. You may not uh. know that because he's not really getting any yeah. coverage right now. But he just um, rolled out um, a proposal to um, convert the United States to all renewable energy by 2035. Mm. It would be a massive deal if it actually happened. And so you can't look at the field and say that, like, these candidates don't have ideas that are setting them apart from each other. But the voters are looking around and thinking, okay, you know, what's yeah. going to happen in the general? Like, yeah. who's my neighbor going to vote for exactly. in November 2020? It's just a weird kind of speculation, Michelle, because I feel like all of these Democratic voters have become like bookies. <laughs> <laughs> and they're placing bets in odds, you know? But Do you, we never know. I mean, people were saying that Trump couldn't win. There were plenty of people who were saying that, and they were wrong. Yeah. Mm. So, you, I mean, as a reporter, the one thing I've learned is I don't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> at least at, at least in terms of predicting the future. You do mm. not know what's going to happen. I think a lot of people are nostalgic for Obama, especially the Democratic side, yeah. basically on the Democratic side. And so they're looking at Biden to be, you know, I heard some comedian call him Obama's daddy. Like, <laughs> right at the end of the day, like, we do not know who's going to win. And we do not know if it's going to help or hurt the Democrats mm. to have so many people running. Yeah. No. This raises the bigger question, like, what is it emotionally and viscerally that is making a lot of Democratic voters feel like they need to act like pundits? Is it because they're just still so shell-shocked that Trump actually won? Is it? I mean, like, what is what is the cause of the punditry from these Democratic voters when usually they just kind of vote for who they like? I think they've been given the tools of pundits, right? You know, mm. everyone can broadcast. Um, you can, you know, start your own podcast. You can go on social media, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. I think people are so scared on the Democratic side. That's what it is. Of the it concept very, that Trump could yes. win again. They're, they're so terrified that he could win again that they're willing, I think, to compromise some of their own passions. Um, just, just to win. You know, because you're, yeah, they're they're saying that you know the perfect is the enemy of the good. Yeah. But having twenty candidates, does that help or hurt? Twenty-two. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Twenty-two, 22 <laughs> more than. Yeah. I have a question for y'all. Have either of you yet had those meatless burgers? In my life, any or like the those specific new impossible new burgers, the new ones that are like extra meaty. The last time I tried to. Uh, order one. I mm -hmm. was told not to because I have celiac disease. Oh, and I was told... Oh, it has the glutens in it? Well, that's what I was told by a, wait a waitress. Okay. And then I found out when I looked on their websites, both of them said that they are gluten-free. Yes. Have you done it, Matt? I am I'm totally... Impossible Burger Free. I've never done it yet. So Impossible Foods is just one company making meatless burgers. They call their meatless burgers Impossible Burgers. But there's another company in the news this week that also makes meatless meat. Uh, it's a California company called Beyond Meat. And Beyond Meat went public this meat this week. <laughs> <laughs> they went public this week. And as soon as they launched, their stock rose like 163% in one day. The company is now valued at more than $3 billion. On top of that, Burger King announced this week that they're going to have meatless Whoppers at every Burger King in the country by the end of the year. 
with these signs that we're seeing this week, do y'all think that we're like in a meatless moment? No. Why not? I mean, yes, I think that <laughs> <laughs> more people more people are open to yes. trying it. Um, the fact that you know you said Burger King, I also heard that Carl's Jr. has something. White Castle like that. does it. Yeah, no, th- there are plenty of places, and having it at that big, um, more options is one thing. But you know, I just don't think that Americans are going to give up their They're cow meat. burgers. I think it's great. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be I'm, 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 there are like a million issues that people have identified with me right you know there's factory farming there's pollution and I'm for the future always so uh, you know bring it on but as long as it's delicious then I, I imagine that you know there could very well be a market for it um, yeah I mean I can tell you I'm from Kansas City Missouri which is known for its barbecue people get really weird about their meat there yeah um, People get weird about their meat everywhere. And so I do think that there's going to be you know, <laughs> some, some pushback. cultural pushback yeah. just yeah. on that level. Yeah. For instance, the beef lobby is pretty mad about the rise of meatless meat, especially when they call it meat. Um, so <laughs> beef and farming industry groups, they have persuaded state houses in more than a dozen states to introduce laws that would make it illegal to use the word meat to describe these burgers or sausages that are made from things that aren't meat or that are grown in labs. It's not the first time that's happened. They had the same conversation about milk. Yeah. Like, can you call soy milk milk when it's not not. from a cow? But there's obviously a market for this meatless stuff because we see the valuation of this Beyond Meat company at $3 billion. Someone wants this. Someone wants it. It it wouldn't be selling. And we'll see how long it sells. Like, will the impossible Whopper take off? We'll find out. We'll find out. Out. It may not be around forever. It might yeah. come around every once in a while, like with the, the McRib. McRib. <laughs> you know? The Impossible Burger is a new McRib. I mean, I like you never that. know. Yeah. Starbucks yeah. popularized the idea that people could pay several bucks for a cup of coffee. So yeah. anything, um, is anything is possible. Anything is possible. All right, it's time for a break. When we come back, my favorite game, Who Said That? BRB. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, where opportunity takes root. More information is available at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. Planet Money tip number 17. Sometimes, life is exactly like the movies. T-minus 30 seconds. They said T-minus. They said T-minus. Planet Money, a podcast about the economy and sometimes about rocket ships. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders, your host here with two guests, Michelle Faust-Ragavan, healthcare policy reporter at KPCC, and Matt Pierce, reporter for the LA Times covering 2020. Y'all, it is time for my favorite game. Ooh, Who said that? Who said that? Who Matt, that? tell Michelle how it works. Uh, how it works is I win. <laughs> actually, no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, this morning I was driving in, uh-huh. uh, and I was experiencing some self-doubt about this game. Uh-oh. Uh, and so I'm, I'm actually, I'm not feeling the mojo at my back. Okay. Uh, so I, I expect it's going to be competitive. Okay. So, Michelle, the game is really easy. I shared three quotes that were in the headlines this week. You have to guess who said it, or the story I'm talking about, or just the keyword. Uh, the winner, per usual, gets absolutely nothing. Shall we begin? Okay. All right. Here's your first quote. You have a pen and pad out. (laughs) Oh, my God. I love it. I'm prepared. (laughs) Yes. Yes. First quote. 
So I stood up and I gave her a hug. And then I went to the phone and called my lawyer. And I said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get the plane. This is going to be my last time waiting for four hours in the Chicago O'Hare airport. Who said that? Who's a famous person from Chicago? Oprah? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I knew it. I'm going to lose. Knew it. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> so this is a quote from Oprah this week in this wide-ranging Hollywood Reporter interview. Uh, she was telling the, that reporter what made her break down and finally buy herself a private jet. She said she was in O'Hare trying to fly with the normals, and some stranger was like, can I give you a hug? And Oprah just had it. She was like, I'm tired of giving people hugs. I'm She's tired afraid of, of measles. <laughs> <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> is Oprah vaccinated? This is the real question. <laughs> this is the real question. But Oprah was like, and in that moment, I decided to buy myself a private jet. She is not like the rest of us. She's Oprah. Also, yeah. would I, if I saw Oprah somewhere, the last thing I would do would be to go up to her and ask for a hug. No. I would pass do out before I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> Next quote. Ready? Quote, such regular occurrence of illicit drugs in wildlife was surprising. There was this big story in the news this week about certain animals having drugs in their system. Is this systems. about the cocaine shrimp? Yes. Yes! <laughs> also, my favorite sentence of the week was, is this about the cocaine shrimp? <laughs> it is. I knew it. It is. So there was some reporting this week that found that some shrimp have cocaine in their system. Uh, that quote comes from Leon Barron. He's a scientist at King's College in London, and he's out with a study that found cocaine in shrimp from the UK's rural Suffolk County. Uh, but the cocaine shrimp is not the shrimp's fault. Researchers <laughs> said drugs and consumer products uh, frequently make their way into the rivers. But what if it were the shrimp's fault? <laughs> That's the better story. <laughs> Isn't this the worst story? <laughs> no, oh my God. I mean, it's kind of a funny story, but it's also, you know, one of those things where you try not to think about it too much because this is true of like a lot of plastics. Um, Everything's in the ocean. Yeah, and, and it's going somewhere yeah. and a lot of it's Have ending up. Have you been up. to Venice Beach? <laughs> Everything Ugh. is in there. Uh, yeah. I mean, just the idea of, like, poisoning wildlife with party drugs. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, also, I haven't thought about it before like, now. Have I, without my knowledge, eaten cocaine shrimp? Yes. Sir. Oh, no. <laughs> I am almost How sir. often do you eat shrimp? I love shrimp. Well, have they well done then this? you have. <laughs> uh, the game is tied. You ready for the last quote? Mm-hmm. All right. Here it is. I have 2,000 Facebook friends. I'm not best friends with all 2,000 people, and there's a good chance that one of them could be a really good match with me. You might not know the name, but tell me what this is about. It's about Facebook and some Facebook news from this week about a new thing they're going to do. so Facebook is going to change their algorithm so you only see the things you want, just the groups and the news? But also something else besides that. Dating. Yes. 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 I feel like that should be a tie. <laughs> <laughs> so Facebook is getting into the dating business. Uh, so that quote was from Facebook dating product manager Charmaine Hung. She was talking to TechCrunch. She was talking to them about this new feature on Facebook called Secret Crush 
where you can basically go into your friend list and choose friends that you really, really like. And if they do the same thing, Facebook will let y'all both know and say, hey, you might want to hook this up and take it out of the friend zone to something more. Every woman on Facebook already knows this happens. That's what they call sliding into the DMs. (laughs) Like it or not, there is always somebody. There's always some bro Mm -mm. all up in your mentions. This is just the new poke. Remember Facebook poke? Yes, I do. And that's what it was. But also, so they're they're going to have that secret crush thing for folks that are already your friends. But there's also going to be a new dating feature in the Facebook app that I guess will help you find dates with strangers, too. I don't see how – what else does Facebook want from us? I'm sorry. I'm still haunted by the phrase dating product manager. (laughs) (laughs) Dating product manager. (laughs) How is this different than Tinder? Yeah, just go to Tinder. I just think that every guy who knows he's going to the next reunion is kind of looking on there and and, and already doing this. I think this is already happening. (laughs) Yeah. And this is just, uh, they're just taking it to the next level. So you don't want it to happen? Well... Thank God Can I'm you married. stop it from happening? But, <laughs> <laughs> no, but just like the, this uh, Facebook harassment of uh, women, yeah. that's a thing, and it's been yeah. a thing for a long time. So maybe it'll be a good thing because you can opt in or opt out. Yeah. Um, Matt, it, it, was, it was close, but I think you won. Now, Michelle, I got to say, for your first time playing this game, you did very, very well. Thank you. You're welcome. You You almost got me there at the end. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Matt, congratulations. That ends Who Said That? This is the part of the show where you would usually hear us talk about our listeners' best things that happened to them all week. And we're going to get to that. But first, I'm going to say goodbye to my guests, Matt Pierce, reporter for the L.A. Times, and KPCC healthcare reporter, Michelle Faust-Ragavan. Thank you both. Have a great weekend. Bye. Bye, Sam. All right. Now we're going to end the show. As we always do, we ask our listeners to share with us the best thing that's happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. They do. Let's listen. Hey, Sam. This is Juan Carlos calling from San Antonio, Texas. Best thing that happened to me this week was finally coming out to my family. The best part of my week was officiating my cousin's wedding. The best thing that happened to me this week was that I finally did my spring cleaning, which meant that I threw away all of the stuff that belonged to my ex-boyfriend. The best thing that happened to me this week was that three young people told me that they saw me as their mentor on their faith journey. Hi, Sam. I'm Abby. I'm Hannah. And I'm Mia. The best thing that happened to us this week is that we went fishing with our Girl Scout troop and Hannah caught... Three fish! Have a great weekend! All right, many thanks to our listeners, Juan Carlos, Julia, Nikki, Vicky, and Abby, Hannah, and Mila. And we're going to try one more thing a little different this week. We're going to spend a little bit of extra time with one listener who sent us some audio of the best part of her week. Her name is Holly Wheeler. She's 28 years old. Hi, Sam. This is Holly from Oregon. And the best part of my week was getting to meet my half-brother for the very first time. So when Holly called us, the whole team said, we got to know more. I want to hear more of this story. So we called up Holly to get the full story. Uh, Holly's a librarian in Portland, Oregon, and she told us about how back when she was five or six, her mother volunteered to be an egg donor and surrogate for another family. Holly and her half-brother's family have stayed in touch over the years, Christmas cards and stuff. But on Easter of this year, um, Holly's half-brother through surrogacy and his mother were visiting the Portland area, and they finally got a chance to meet. She told me all about it. Hi, Holly. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Sam. 
before we start, I just got to say uh, thank you for your service as a librarian. Oh, Y'all are needed now more than ever in this like era of what is truth, what is fact, what is fiction. So thanks for your service. <laughs> yeah, it feels like an important time to be a librarian. But um, yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah. So you're 28, just now meeting your half brother. Were you nervous? Was I nervous? Um, a, a little bit, yeah. maybe. I think I was a little bit nervous if we would have anything in common. And I think we've, the two of us have led such totally different lives. You know, he's this like world traveler, very outdoorsy, always like scuba diving and, you know, skiing and all sorts of stuff. And I'm like this homebody librarian who would much rather curl up with my cat and, you know, never see anyone else. (laughs) (laughs) Did you prepare like a little script of what you would say when you like, opened that door and saw him for the first time. (laughs) No, I didn't. I definitely didn't know what to expect. And it was kind of amazing when they did knock on the door. My parents and I were all sitting in the living room just like, you know, giddy and nervous. Hmm. Um, But we opened the door and everybody just like naturally like just went in for a big hug. Did you notice things in common with him once y'all were in the same room? Were you like, oh, we have that same nose or we talk (laughs) the same way or like were there commonalities? Um, I think he does. He he looks a lot like my mom. Uh, I don't uh, look so much like my mom, which is kind of funny. But yeah. when my mom talks, you know, she's just like this really positive person. And she kind of like she nods, you know, nods her head up and down when she talks. Mm-hmm. And and he he does the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> what surprised you the most about the whole thing? I think just how easy and natural it was. Um, We ended up spending about 10 hours together that day and it flew by in about two seconds. You know, we, we all ate a couple of meals together and like went on a couple of walks around the neighborhood and around town and relaxed with a glass of wine all together out on, out on my parents' back deck and enjoyed the view. And it just felt like such a natural, I don't know. It felt natural. It felt like, Oh, my family. <laughs> thanks again to Holly Wheeler, and thanks again to every listener who sends us the best parts of their week every week. You can do that whenever you want. Just record yourself and email that file to me at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. Thank you all for doing that. We love hearing them all, even if we can't play them all. All right, that ends the show. Uh, This week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry. Uh, Steve Nelson is our director of programming. Our fearless editors are Jordana Hochman and Alex McCall. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grunman. All right, listeners, till next time, thanks for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon.